Hello and welcome back to Inside the Mind. Now you'll notice with today's podcast and podcasts going forward, um, the things are a little bit different and they look and feel different and the conversation is a little bit different. I'm going to explain why. Six, six months ago, I was asked the question of where do you want your podcast to be in six months time? And this sort of brought about a lot of introspection, both personally as well as just creatively. And I asked myself, is my podcast giving me the output that I think is of value to my audience? I ultimately came to the answer that no, that wasn't the case. So I decided that to look elsewhere in terms of inspiration, as well as also figure out what I want my podcast to be. So I did two things. I reached out to someone called by the name of Stephen Bartlett, who has the UK's number one podcast, which is called Diary of a CEO. And I drew a lot of inspiration from that because I've always been a very entrepreneurial minded person and someone who loves gaining a lot of feedback and uh, information from those who are incredibly successful. So that's what I think the podcast is going to be. It's certainly going to be a lot more forensic and a lot deeper in terms of understanding the hidden lessons, some of the truths about these people's lives and what may, what went into them becoming so successful. So I hope that you really enjoyed today's podcast, which is with Erin Posthumus. Erin is a young South African who's achieved incredible deal at such a young age. He was rated GQ Innovator of the Year in 2020. He was a mail and guardian top 200 young South Africans in 2020. And he's also won Investor Entrepreneur of the Year. He now has, he's on his third business venture now, which is called Moment, which is an NFT marketplace. Um, and it's certainly something that I actually perceive one day becoming a unicorn in, in South Africa. Um, I hope that you really enjoyed today's podcast. I got a lot of value out of it. Uh, and please do me a favor. Please like and subscribe uh, below. It helps more than you can imagine. And without further ado, let's go inside the mind of Aaron Posthuman. Aaron? Welcome to uh, Inside the Mind. Um, one of the things that sort of in, in this new format that I'm going to start doing a lot more is uh, finding out a little bit more about the foundations of people. Yeah. Um, you know, when you build a house, there's a foundation, then you build the house from there onwards or whatever. So I kind of want to understand what happened in your life to make you such a successful person and what it was that, that brought, it, brought it about. So I kind of want to start in the start because your name is very interesting. Okay. Um, what, what is it? Uh, my name, Aaron. And then your surname? Aaron Posthumus. So uh, Aaron actually translates into eagle and Posthumus directly translates from Latin into after death. So, uh, and then my middle name is Joshua, which uh, it means leader. So string it all together. It means eagle leader after death. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and where, where did you go up? Tell me what you're bringing. Uh, so I grew up in Kimberley. Kimberley is a small uh, diamond mining town, famous for uh, a massive diamond rush that happened there. But obviously, just like every other mining town, you know, all of the natural resources get exported, and uh, not much stays in the town. So it's really small town, very Afrikaans, uh, still a little bit backwards. You know, internet came to us a little while later than the rest of the the world. I mean, South Africa was delayed, and then we were delayed behind South Africa, <laughs> yeah. but um, still, uh, you know, for all of it, it, it's, it's one of those things where people from Kimberley like to trash on Kimberley, but secretly it has like a special place in your heart. It's a, it's a great place to grow up, small community, you know, you can ride around bicycles to your friend's house. So it has benefits. Yeah. yeah. And um, how long did you live there for? So I grew up in Kimberley until uh, about grade three when my parents got divorced. Then we moved to Johannesburg uh, and uh, lived in Joburg for six, seven years. Yeah, till grade seven, right? Um, and then moved back to Kimberley after that. Yeah, and yeah. I want to provide like a little bit of context into you because I realized we just jumped into it. Yeah. Um, you are, it's, it's one of those things, I've, you've been on my radar for a very long time to have a podcast with you. And I think, especially now with your, with your new company, I think it's now the right sort of time for mm. us to be having this podcast because I think, you're what, 26 years old? Yeah. Um, what you've achieved, if you look at your resume, it is <laughs> it is beyond crazy. Um, so for those you don't know, Aaron is a GQ Innovator of the Year in 2020, uh, male, top 200 young South Africans, male and guardian editor's choice in what year was that, 2021? 2020 as well. Yeah. 2020 as well. Uh, and then there was a one more accolade, which I'm, I'm forgetting, uh, uh, out in, of many. <laughs> Investec, 
maybe that one. Yeah, invest the second drop in your leader of the year or something. Yes, yeah. it was that. Um, so it's definitely a podcast I'm really looking forward to because you don't really find um, a lot of young people achieving so many great things uh, so so often. Thank you, um, making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things that uh, struck out to me that you said in uh, in an interview somewhere, mm. I was always destined to be great. So I always had an idea that I was destined to do something great. Yeah. When did that come about? And when did you learn that? Well, when you say always, I think you you kind of mean always, right? Like there yeah. was, I I always felt like like I needed to do something meaningful with my life, you know, from, and I, I do mean always, like I don't remember not having that feeling. And in some t some ways it, it almost feels like pressure, right? Pressure that you apply on yourself. You're like, I am a failure unless I'm able to do something impactful or meaningful with my life. So I do think that sometimes from the outside, it, it looks like you've achieved so much, but on the inside, it's like, I haven't achieved anything yet. Like how much real meaningful impact have I made? And I'm, I'm just getting started. You know, that's yeah. kind of how I feel internally. And, and sort of where, where did that come from? Was that coming from, I, I, I don't know what are your, what was your environment sort of growing up? Sure. Um, did that come, did it stem from that or? Sure. So the, the, the one thing that I think it, it may come from, right, was um, my, my mother and father got divorced when um, I was in grade two. Like I said, grade three moved to Joburg, but they got divorced because uh, my father was an alcoholic. And um, after they got divorced, I, I still remember it very clearly. I have strangely crystal memories of like very, very young. And one of them was my mom telling me, well, you're the man of the house now. Like you need to, you need to be the man of the house. And I, we've reflected upon this, you know, speaking about it in our family. And I don't think she meant it very seriously. I think she might've just been joking and saying like, you're the man of the house now. You know, I've grew up with two older sisters and my mom. So I was the boy, like I was technically the, the male of the household. Um, but I think when I heard that at six, seven years old, I felt like that was a, a point of responsibility. Now it's my job to look after people. It's my job to make sure that we're well provided for. And I did, I, this definitely uh, fed into being an, an entrepreneur because we would go to the shops, um, you know, uh, we we were not very financially privileged. My, my mother comes from um, a poorer background. Um, and then obviously she was a single mom. There was no help from, from my father. And we moved to Joburg on our own. And I would be the one in the shops where she would be like, do you want this chocolate? And I'm like, no, we can't, we can't buy chocolate. Like I can't afford that. You know, we, these useless expenses save the money, you yeah. know? Um, and literally in grade three, uh, started selling, um, like Drinko pops and things at school. Drinko pop has a really great margin. You buy them from macro in bulk, 50 cents. You sell them for one round. You're doubling your money, man. Like why, you know, <laughs> um, also sold Heelys when that was a trend. I actually got yeah. in trouble at school for selling, uh, BB guns as well. I went to Chinatown. May, listeners might not believe this, but I promise you, I negotiated a price three round 50 per gun. Like for a, for a plastic yeah, pelican, three yeah. rand fifty, that's man, that's crazy. One. Sell it for like fifteen rand. That's an even better markup. Um, so I got in huge trouble. Obviously, like weapons dealing at school is no joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wasn't allowed to sell the guns anymore. So all I did was I sold the service to fix them because I had a whole bunch of spare guns now. So I was like, I could swap out the springs and the plastic parts, and I was like, well, I can still do that. You know, I'm not technically selling guns, so. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that did feed into being an entrepreneur from a young age, you know, trying to make sure that I could uh, financially provide, even though, you know, at that stage, it, it, it ends up being pocket money, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, what school did you go to? Was it the school also sort of bred that like sort of excellence thing? So I do think the school um, picked up on it. So uh, I went to Saxon World Primary School, a really, really great school in Johannesburg. What was really great for me as an individual, and I, I hope we can talk about this transparently, is that Kimberley was very backwards, very Afrikaans, very white. And uh, racial tension, I think, is still something that's very alive and well in smaller towns like that. And moving to Joburg and uh, going to Saxonville Primary School was uh, an incredible experience for me because I was essentially the only white kid in the school. Um, and I only say that because it gave me exposure to a lot of other different cultures, a lot of different uh, types of individuals. Um, and it really op opened up my worldview in a, in a really healthy way, I think. 
Um, so grade school and definitely when I started getting to uh, grade six and grade seven, the school did notice uh, what I tended towards. Um, and I was put through leadership programs. Uh, I, I was head boy of the school in grade seven. Um, I think I got like one of those cringy awards. It's like most likely to succeed or something, <laughs> but I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah, but uh, the only reason I ask it is because I've, I've always noticed a very clear thing with entrepreneurs because I had the same thing where you started a very, very young age, young like age yeah. just hustling. Yeah. Mine, mine was on the theater. It was grade five. We had an entrepreneurship day mm. and an entrepreneurship day. I went to Butler's Pizza mm. and I sent them a letter and I said, Hey, I'm having this entrepreneurship day. Could you please donate a couple of pizzas to me? And they were like, I only asked for like two or three. Yeah. They ended up donating like 30 pizzas. Nice. Worth like magnums, or whatever. We had the highest ever profits that yeah. grade fives have ever gotten that day. And that was a day like the sort of like entrepreneurial- it, The flame, like- The flame yeah, was yeah, less, yeah. man. And, um, and I say kudos to my school for doing that because yep. I think if, um, if that had never been a thing in my life, mm. I would have never had that spark. Yeah. So I was kind of wondering whether it was the same sort of thing for you. And I'm glad to, to know that or hear yep. that, it's, that, it, that is the case. Yeah. Sort of fast forwarding a little bit, uh, your interests, where did it start? So you, obviously after high school, you go to UCT. Yeah. Uh, what did you study at UCT? So at UCT, I studied uh, computer science and business science. So I was between law and computer science. Those were my two primary interests. I did IT as an extracurricular in high school because they didn't offer it in the normal curriculum. Um, so I was always very interested in computers, specifically uh, around video games, which I think is a starting point for many people when they when they want to learn how to code or how they get into programming. Uh, it's because you play games and you're like, well, I want to make my own or I want to edit this. I want to change things. So that is where it came from for me. But I also had a very strong and keen interest in law. Um, I did debating and public speaking quite successfully, and I always enjoyed debating and public speaking and that therefore law aligned with me very well. And the sole reason why I chose computer science was because I was like, I don't want to defend someone who's guilty ever, you know, that morally I, I don't, I think to be a lawyer, you have to have a flexible moral compass. And I don't, you know, I'd walk into a courtroom and be like, he's guilty, arrest him. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I chose computer science. Um, I uh, shuffled my uh, degree around. So I uh, finished off with computer science, business science and information systems as majors. Okay, you touched on something which is like values. Um, yeah. What sort of do you think are your key values? My key values, core values, core values for life. Um, I think hard work is always rewarded. That's one of my my core values. I think it, it really speaks into, there's a, there's a common saying like you, you make your own luck, right? And that's so, so, so true. And people really undervalue that. There's a lot of great arguments for why just relentlessly working hard will not result in success in life. And I can see the value of those arguments, but the truth is you, you need to work hard in order to succeed. You absolutely must. And I think hard work is always rewarded in some way or another, whether that be through skills that you learn, through hardship that you face, um, or through opportunities that all of a sudden presented to you, a core value for me is hard work is always rewarded. Another one is you should always try and uplift those around you. This is something that I think I learned in gymming with my friends, you know, in high school, you start gymming with mates, you're trying to look good for chicks, you know, it's, it's that normal thing, but you really get two different kinds of people in the gym, right? You get the one guy who sees you lifting heavier weights, doing, doing more reps. And he goes, no, that's enough now. And you get the other guy who goes, fuck yeah, man, do more. Like, come on, you can do, you got this, like I'm supporting you. And I always found myself being the latter, right? I am highly competitive. I do want to be the best, but I don't want to be the best because everyone else is worse. I want to be the best of the best, yeah. which means you have to uplift everyone up. Um, and I, that's a very core value for me as well. And that's very indicative of like society at large, right? Yeah. Like there are always those people who want to see you fall and they can't see you succeed past them because everyone believes it's a zero sum game. I think or, it's very toxic. It's very <laughs> toxic. So I was going to ask you is how, how have you coped with it? Because obviously you achieved, you started achieving things probably like substantially at like a, 20, a 22 or so, 23, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. That's a very young age. And I can imagine you probably had a lot of critique and a lot of sort of people not saying, don't do this. That's too brave of a thing to pursue. How did yeah. you, how did you maneuver that? 
again, I think it, it just always comes down to uh, having self-confidence and certainty in yourself. And there, there is a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And I think as long as you're confident, it's really good. You shouldn't be arrogant. Um, but they will always like, you're not doing life right unless you have some haters, right? You gotta have, but it is a challenge. I think especially um, something that I still hear very often to this day is like, man, you need to work less or man, like uh, you need to calm down. And it's like, who am I calming down for? Am I calming down for you so that you feel better about your achievements in life? Or am I calming down for me? Because it's certainly not for me. I love what I do. Like, this is my hobby. You know, maybe you enjoy playing soccer with your mates. Power to you. I want you to go and do that. I enjoy having a late night coding, you know. Yeah. That's my hobby. You know, yeah. let me have it, man. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, and then your, your first venture, was that Job Matcher? Yeah. Job. Yeah. So yeah. there was one little one before that where we were just importing uh, and selling like uh, electronic goods. At the height of the Pokemon Go craze, we saw a gap in the market for uh, battery banks. Okay. Uh, so we imported and sold battery banks very unsuccessfully, to be honest. So that was gonna be my next question. Yeah. So how many failures have you had? Uh, no, <laughs> tons of failures, man. Like being an entrepreneur is all, of, there is no such thing as a failure if you learn. Right, if you learn something from it, you have not failed. Um, if you don't learn anything, then then it's a failure. But um, I mean, what I learned from that first venture with the battery banks is uh, don't cheap out because we bought the cheapest batteries we could and they just didn't work. Simple as that. They, yeah. So the whole shipment has arrived. Yeah, it imported work. like 300 battery banks, um, like five of them actually worked, you know, so, so big lesson there, put our cash up front, just lost it straight away. Um, job matcher was the next one. And that's where we started to learn some real startup lessons. Um, and that was myself, Adam, a good friend of mine, Nikki, um, and or, or, uh, Nikki being a boy or a girl, Nikki boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, all right. We really wanted to address the youth unemployment in South Africa. Uh, first and foremost, that was our goal. And we were young and ambitious at university. We were like, we can build an app and solve youth unemployment. We can like, this is possible, right? Uh, as you grow up, you realize these things take uh, a lot more than that. And it's not that simple, but I'd say the key mistake that we made was that we built for two years without testing with our users. Uh, and then we released and we just hoped that everything that we had built and done up till that time point was correct. So your first release was an MVP two years later. Oh, yeah. And we had been building for two years. Adam was in China, um, uh, like busy, busy living and working in China, busy coding from there. I was in Cape town, busy, uh, coding from there. Uh, so we had like time zone challenges, but, and then we had, uh, uh Nikki who was not technical. Uh, he was managing more like the, the finance. He was, a uh, he's studying accounting. So it all made sense, but we were just building and building and building. And then we released and what we had done was actually not too bad. We did 273 job placements in the first weekend. So that was really great. And then COVID happened. What are, the, what are these jobs? Sorry to interject. Yeah, so the jobs were all like uh, promo jobs, kind of, uh, they were all ad hoc pieces of work. So the most prominent one, which we found, and I think we could have found it sooner if we did things differently, was promotion work. It's one of the most common jobs that, that gets done at university. And when I say promotion, I mean for uh, liquor, for Parmalat in a shop, for drill bits, like this is the most common thing that young individuals are hired for to, to fill that role and to do. And promoters generally have to do this on a WhatsApp group. They have to drive around and check that everyone's there. And we solve these problems. We made it that you can swipe on people that you want to do the job. So you can like pick people really easily and you know they're interested in the work because uh, they've already swiped on you. That's how they show up on your list. Um, and then also all of the jobs are geolocation tracked. So you can just see if the person is there or not without driving around and checking up on them. So we solved a very key problem for the promotions industry, but we had tried to build this app for everything. You know, we pictured it for if you needed uh, boxes moved, you know, if you needed help moving apartments, if you needed to clean your your house, if uh, you needed someone to hand a tut in for you, you know, and it, and it did get used for that one actually, but um, mainly it was promotions work. Like the big bulk of, bulk of it would have been promotions work. COVID hit, promotions work went out the window, we had to make very tough calls on, on closing that business down. So let's rewind, because you've now mentioned two businesses in which prior you hadn't done the research to mm. be able to execute properly. Yep. Rewind to 
to Aaron before that first one. What were the, what were some things you would do uh, differently to ensure that you 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 found about to start a new business? Yeah. What would you research and what would you focus your attention on? Well, the mistake that we make there, going hindsight, is that you've learned the lesson, right? Never in life can you learn the lesson, go back and redo it. So in my maybe controversial answer to you would be, I would do nothing different. Um, you got to just do things, man. Like, like pick it up, especially when you're young, especially, especially when you're young. Like I started working on Job Matcher knowing that I was going to learn lessons from this and that the chance of success was extremely small. I didn't care. I wanted to build something. I wanted to learn lessons. I just wanted to grab the bull by the horns and go for it. Um, and I think that's really where you learn the best lessons. That's where you um, make things happen, right? I think too many people get stuck on the research component for forever, or they find a competitor. They, they, when you do that exercise, more often than not, I think people find reasons not to do it rather than reasons to do it. So you're proposing jumping headfirst? I'm proposing it. jump headfirst. I'm proposing just do it. Yeah, I can't remember who says it, but there was someone who says, it's like, it's like jumping out of a, pl building a plane on the way down. Yeah. So that's what entrepreneurship should be. Yeah. Um, but uh, then you had COVID and how did you navigate COVID? So you decided to shut down Job Matcher. Yeah, so we decided to shut down Job Matcher uh, at that stage. So Job Matcher was between still being at university and finishing university. Uh, so I got my first job in cybersecurity uh, at a company called MWR. Great opportunity, learned a lot there as well. So I moved up to Joburg. Um, my mom got cancer and she wasn't getting uh, effective treatment in Kimberley. So I moved her up with me uh, to Joburg and we, we lived together for a while there. Um, and she got really great treatment. She's all, all fine now. So yeah, everything sorted. Um, but back onto the job. So was working uh, at MWR and all the while still kind of side hustling and building apps uh, now more with Adam. So in this process as well, found um, business partners where things worked and where things didn't work. Job Matcher also evolved into a new venture called Project Cuda. That's like the the working title. It, uh, it was, you know, it was literally a project. So we were like, this is Project Cuda. And there we were doing, Job Matcher was for low LSM work and Project Cuda would have been for the higher, like executive kind of role. So if you need to hire a, a CFO on a three month basis, just to help you figure out some of your financials or um, a, a tax consultant, you know, something like this. So we, we built a business around that. And the mistake that I, I still to this day, I know the mistake that we made on that business was that we didn't fundraise. It was one of those technology businesses where you don't succeed unless you raise funding and you establish yourself in the market. And it's very key. I would like my advice to anybody who's trying to build a technology business or any business, in fact, is the first thing you need to figure out is whether or not this is a business that you need to raise for or not. 80% of businesses don't need to raise, right? And something that I'm noticing right now as a trend, because everyone's focusing on tech companies and fundraisers, that they think you have to raise for any kind of business. That's not true. If you have a restaurant, if you have a service-based business, if you have a goods-based business, I don't think those are valid reasons for, for raising. And as far as possible, you should try and bootstrap. You have to realize when you raise, you're giving up equity, you're giving up control and parts of your company. Um, and you need to know that the benefit of that is there in the long run. So on bootstrapping, mm. um, can a tech company uh, bootstrap? 1000%, especially today. Uh, there's so many free services and tiers and things that we can use to, to test out our ideas that I think you can get very far before you have to raise the center funding. And when you do raise funding, it would probably be to fuel a marketing engine rather than to actually build or test your product. Hello, sorry to interrupt today's podcast. I wanted to give you a quick message from today's sponsor, which is Moment. Moment is an accessible ad-free social marketplace powered by NFTs. Collectors on Moment can spot potential and curate a portfolio on their own. Moment empowers creators, communities, and builders to be part of the decentralized future. For me personally, Moment has given me a tremendous amount of value. Moment is a social marketplace powered by NFTs I've mentioned, meaning that creators like myself can show their work build their following and earn royalties on the back of our work. 
moments of space where collectors can spot potential and curate a portfolio of their own, be it a digital portfolio or a digital investment portfolio. Moment's a powerful hub that empowers us creators to make their dream projects a reality. If you can think of it, Moments can facilitate it. If they have, some, they have some awesome business partnerships on the horizon, and I think you'll enjoy it. But most importantly for me, Moments has made an accessible NFT marketplace that is inclusive for all. They've broken down all the jargon and hard to understand technologies into an app that just requires a smartphone and an internet connection. But let's get back to the pod. So Erin, um, you mentioned something which has sort of like struck a, a chord with me a little bit. Um, I'm sorry to hear that your mom had cancer. Uh, I carry this necklace around mm. everywhere I go. It's got four women's names. It's my grandmother, my adopted mother, my birth mother, and my grandmother. Mm. I think I've, I don't know if I said that. But um, one of the things that struck out to me is the role that you have with your mother. Because I have a very like tight sort of bond yeah. and feel to it, especially with women in my life. Yeah. Um, tell me about that relationship. We're yeah. shaped by the woman in our lives. Um, and yeah, I'm definitely a self-described mama's boy. Um, I think I, I mean, I'm, I'm in Cape Town. I'm far away from home. Um, I, I don't get a chance to go up to Joburg as much as I'd like to, uh, to visit them. But, you know, I speak to my mom on like a daily basis. And I think she's played such a pivotal role in me becoming the, the individual that I am today. Uh, in all the strong and and tough decision decisions that she's made in her life for the better, right? Like people, I think what what I learned and and grew from that is that sometimes you have to make really really hard decisions, and your life will get harder before it gets easier. For example, like uh, divorcing my father, right? Very very hard decision. She lost a lot of financial support. She lost a lot of um, support in general, right? Um, and it was a tough decision to make, especially coming from a more conservative background. It's not something that you do. Um, and having three kids then to raise. Uh, after that, she decided to leave uh, work at uh, uh, DM Dull, um, which is the, you know, the biggest diamond mining company in the world. It's De Beers, it's an offspring of De Beers, uh, to, to run her own business. So she herself is an entrepreneur yeah. and she took that leap having, uh, I remember she told me she had like 50,000 Rand in savings total. So she quit her job having three kids to support to start a new business with 50,000 Rand in the bank. That's like a huge risk, you know, and she took that and she made it a success. Uh, and she's created a business that has provided for all of us up until this point. And very, very, things got harder before they got easier. You know, we were eating baked beans and toast daily uh, for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you've got to be able to make those decisions. And she's someone that I, I really look up to. And I think she's an in incredible mother. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate that I was uh, raised by such a, a strong, a strong woman as her. Yeah. So there's a cool event that happened in your life where you bought your mother a home. Oh yeah. Tell me about that feeling and the day. So that was always, I think what this time I'm saying always, but, um, in, in starting to go through my working career, I set a goal for myself to be able to buy my mom a house uh, by the age of 25. Um, and a strong contributing factor for that was, uh, like I said, things get harder before they get easier. Things did begin to get easier for us um, in my high school life, you know, towards uh, grade 11 and 12. Um, we, my mom managed to, to buy a house in Kimberley that was effectively her dream house. Um, and it was very decrepit, run down. And we had the opportunity to actually make the house our own and to start renovating it, shape rooms. I got to pick like what I wanted my room to look like and organization stuff. And, and it was the nicest house we had ever lived in. Family came over all the time. It was a real dream. And there was uh, a financial error in her business that meant that she had to sell the house. And I remember that was quite a, uh, an emotional time for, for us. And she always throughout our lives has, has um, kept a very strong face on, but I knew that that was something that, um, that affected her. And, and, and um, I think she, you know, ultimately we would have liked to have not lost the house. In hindsight, it's great because now she lives in Joburg, doesn't live in Kimberley anymore. It wouldn't make sense uh, in anyways. But that was a, a strong driving force for me to be like, I want to give this, like she has sacrificed so much in her life for us. She's given 
her absolute, she's given everything for us. Um, the least I could do is, you know, try and um, make that count, um, try and reach a level of success where um, financially I can provide in that respect and try to begin to give back for all the years that I was a drain, I wanted to be giving back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no, absolutely. And it's like, I resonate a lot with, with that because I'm in a different spe space because it's a goal of mine to provide for my grandmother. Mm. But I know that I'm a couple of years off from, from, from getting to that point. But it's, it's certainly very inspirational to hear that. And I say like, hats off to you, dude. Thank you. Um, I think that's an incredible and very noble thing to do as well. Um, but let's get back to sort of your career. Um, especially after lockdown, you then move into lockdown buzzer. Yes. So like I said, I was working a cybersecurity job uh, in Johannesburg as a consultant. Uh, effectively, what my job was, was to um, find vulnerabilities in large banks and telecommunication companies and report them to them, right? So they, they pay us to hack their systems and then uh, help, like give them a report to help them fix it. Um, I then uh, was headhunted by uh, an incredible company called Jumo here in Cape Town. Uh, they're a fintech company um, and came down and worked as head of cybersecurity or uh, application security uh, in, in their department, helping teach devs secure coding practices and to run internal uh, cybersecurity testing as well. Um, and at that stage, again, like I said, Adam and I had always been building things, always been um, working on projects, uh, some just for fun, some will never see the light of day, some code repos we're still sitting on, a few we've like sold on the sideline to people who know about them. But um, we then decided to quit our jobs and uh, start our own development agency. We called it Ebonair. Um, uh, I, I was the air, he was the ebb and yeah, that's how we, so it was Ebonair and we were building technology for other companies. Um, and it was really great for us to build up an engineering capacity. And what we found our, our unique skill set was in learning from all these past lessons in failing startups of our own, we were ideally, uh, situated to be effectively startups as a service. So people would come to us with an idea and we would go, no, 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 no. You need to do this to test your assumptions, like build an MVP. Don't try and like, they would come to us with a huge budget and say, cool, we need to build this over the next year. And we go, no, slice that budget in a quarter and let's build something within two weeks, test it, get feedback, and then use that to continue building. And we have a scalable MVP and people ate that shit up. Yeah. They loved it, right? Because yeah. it worked. Makes the most sense. Because it absolutely worked. Um, and then like in peak of COVID, every developer friend that we had was making a COVID map, right? And Adam and I at the time were living together in the same apartment. We had converted our um, living room into an office. So we would both go to our day jobs come home and carry on working, you know, till like two or 3 a.m. and then next day go to work, come back and, and cycle on repeat before we quit our jobs. Um, and we really wanted to do something for COVID. And we were literally brainstorming for uh, probably about a week, like what could we do, what could we do? This COVID map thing doesn't really help anyone. It just, you know, it gives you a bunch of stats and numbers, it doesn't inform anything, it doesn't help anyone. And then, uh, the president came on and he announced the the harsh lockdown and the regulations. And it was like a 22 page document and everyone was confused. No one knew what the hell they could or couldn't do. There was strange, like restrictions around everything. Um, and so we had an idea to simplify that, make it indexed, make, make it with images, make it really easy to see, like to boil it down, it was all about simplicity, make it accessible to people so they know what's happening. Um, and we, uh, I still went uh, with my friend Nikki, the same one from Job Matcher. He he invited me um, to to go on a little holiday with him, and I spent pretty much the whole holiday just coding, like four days straight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, he can attest to this. You'd like go to bed and then come in the morning. And he's like, "Dude, have you not slept?" And I'm like, "No, I'm going." <laughs> Um, and yeah, so we built that in four days. We shared it on a couple of WhatsApp groups and it just went viral, man, like completely unexpected. We weren't trying to make something massive or scalable or launch a business. It was a portfolio project. We wanted to do something that we thought was cool. And, uh, it shows you when you have something with good product market fit, it just takes off on its own, uh, and you'll feel that. And so it, it took off on its own. We got like 1.5 million users in the first 72 hours. 
And um, yeah, later on we built a, a UK version, we built an American schools version. So yeah, and then we we reminded ourselves that it was a weekend project and that we didn't want to like pour our lives into that app. So we, yeah, we exited and, and took a step back. Yeah, and you touched on obviously South Africa because you mentioned the president and it got me thinking a little bit of existing in South Africa as a, a very, as one, a white young South African, a very ambitious young South African. What is your experience of, of living in South Africa uh, as an entrepreneur, one? Yeah. And, then, and then two to that, why haven't, you, why haven't you looked elsewhere? Why haven't you looked to immigrants? Being an entrepreneur means you solve problems. And if you solve problems, you want to be in a place that has a lot of problems, right? South Africa has, Africa has a lot of problems, which I look at as very positively, you know, as an opportunity to, to make an impact. Like I said, my, my, what I've always felt from a young age is I want to make an impact. I want to make a positive impact on people's lives. And this is a space where you can do that, where you can build unique products, where you can create jobs, where you can introduce technologies that maybe people think are reserved for uh, the West. You know, they're not. Um, I, you know, maybe I am white, you know, that obviously indicates colonial roots, but I was born here. I was raised here. I have a kinship with this country and I love South Africa. I've traveled around to other places in the world and I would not want to be anywhere else. This is the most beautiful country with the most incredible people, right? It's like part of all the issues that we have is that we have an incredibly resilient uh, population and we have people who are very positive actually, because when there's so much uh, happening around you, there's so much negativity around you, you naturally either have to fall into the abyss or you have to build up a resilience and be uh, positive and, and look beyond that and and strive for for, happiness and, and goodness in life. And I, I really feel and see that within South Africans. Yeah. And the reason why this also the question is very poignant to me is that eight months ago, I took a decision to, to, to immigrate to, to, yeah. to London. Yeah. You're leaving us. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it's been, it's been, it's been amazing to, to leave there. And I, I, I definitely, I certainly don't regret that I live there. But I noticed that as well, at the time where I moved over, there was like a mass exodus of, mm. of highly qualified young For sure. people. For sure. How, I don't know, and I guess maybe this is a bit, I'm maybe might be proposing a question that maybe requires a bit of thinking, but how do you retain young people and keep them in South Africa and keep them sort of as optimistic as you and as sort of willing to sort of fight the problem? Because yeah. I've lost that. I've yeah. lost that desire to want to stick around and fight. And fight. Yeah. I'm now kind of living a little bit selfishly, which I know is selfish. No. But, so, but so yeah. first of all, I just want to quickly jump in there and say, don't feel bad at all, right? I have seen how South Africans in particular have made an incredibly positive impact by doing, in, in a sense, what you're doing, right? So one of our investors, also a very controversial character, and I don't want to get into, in, into him too much, but our earliest investor in, in our current company moment is Rob Hershoff. He moved to the UK and lived in the UK for a very long time. And now he's come back having built up incredible wealth, incredible network, and he's coming back with a mission to help South Africa. And in some, sometimes it's vitally important for you to be selfish. I've been selfish in my journey, right? I've cut off family, I've cut off friends to, and, and made sacrifices to be hyper-focused on um, being the best version of myself that I can be. Because then what you do is you bring this, um, you bring something to the table, you know, there's a, there's a period of selfishness and, and yeah, selfishness doesn't always have to be negative, right? So you may emigrate to the UK, make a ton of money, send it back home to your gran, right? That's already, you're sending money, foreign direct investment into South Africa. You're doing a great thing for the country. So first of all, don't feel bad. Your second question was how do we retain people here? And, um, how do we, we get people excited and positive about being here? And again, it really just comes around to uh, people who want to make an impact, right? Um, there's other major benefits of staying in South Africa that people often overlook. Um, the cost of running our company out of South Africa is roughly a quarter of what it would be if we ran it out of uh, Europe or uh, America, because costs of living and salary expectations, there are just completely different, right? I went to Switzerland recently to meet with investors and I was mind blown. I went to the shops two chicken breasts were the, the equivalent of 240 rand yeah. for two uncooked 
like uh, grocery store chicken breasts. Yeah, I do. Here in South Africa, I literally buy a whole tray of chicken breasts for like 130, 140 rand, like mm -hmm. an entire tray from pick and pay. You yeah. know, I could feed like a family with, with, with all of that chicken. It's costs are just much lower here, yeah. right? And there's tons of people who do want to stay here. There's tons of people who do want to solve problems and who are passionate about, um, you know, building things inside. Also Cape Town is beautiful, man. Like look at the mountain, look at the beach, like look at the, the infrastructure that we've got here. Like, I think a lot of our problems are isolated within government and, um, Again, we have an incredible population um, of people here, and I think you can live a great standard of living and you can make an impact and you can change lives by, by being here. And so I don't think we have to do too much convincing. That's, yeah. I, I, spent, I spent a lot of time in, in Swiss. I spent a year in Switzerland mm. and I resonated a lot. I laughed because it, it was ridiculously expensive. Ridiculously expensive. Like accommodation and, and, all, and all that. But um, then let's talk about moments. And sure. I think also there's a little bit of curiosity in sort of, I mean, I sort of understand it, how NFTs work, mm. but I think Web3, yeah. I think there's a lot of sort of jargon that people Tons. perhaps don't understand. And I think I was actually having a conversation two days ago because I was telling people about our partnership. Mm. And um, the first thing this, this one girl said, Sarah, she was like, what is the blockchain? Mm. And I was like, that's actually quite hectic because that's like a really the first entry point that yeah. people don't even understand. So how can you even delve further into NFTs and crypto? Yeah. So first, where did the um, fascination with Web3 as well as um, crypto come in for you? Yeah. So um, Adam and myself have, have always like had a, a, a role to play in the digital asset space. So um selling uh, in-game items has been something that we've done in the past and that we've always kept an eye on. Um, blockchain technology is something that we were obviously watching very closely and crypto obviously is, is closely tied to that. I think the simplest way that I can explain blockchain, if, if that's a question like what is blockchain? Yeah, start the start. I think. The simplest way that I can explain blockchain is it's a distributed internet. Like it's an internet that is not controlled by single entities. So the, the, the current internet that we live on is absolutely wholly owned, like 99% by Amazon, Google, Microsoft. These guys literally run all of the server infrastructure that everything you use, like this podcast will probably be streamed on uh, Google servers, like off of Google servers. Now the blockchain is a way for thousands of individuals to own that infrastructure. And if you own that infrastructure, you also get the benefits of owning that infrastructure. Um, gas fees are essentially just your service cost of using the infrastructure. That's a, a common terminology in blockchain. And it, it becomes really, really important for, uh, I think the growth of uh, an internet age that we live in, but also what I'm really excited about in Web3 right now is unlocking uh, possibilities that are previously just absolutely not possible right so i'll i'll give you a first exclusive here right like i'm going to tell you something that we've not revealed to anyone publicly before but one of the things that we're going to be doing uh for with moment and with nfts and this is a great use case of the technology is you as a creator right can raise money off the back of a video. Let's say you're, you release this video and you sell a hundred NFTs that represent the ownership of this video. Each of those token holders will now forever receive revenues from the streams, right? If we do it this way, we don't have to compete with Spotify, YouTube, or anyone. The streams still happen there. The revenues are still generated there, right? But what you get to do is give your fans ownership of those revenues and you get capital up front. So now you can take that capital up front, buy a new camera, buy a new microphone, start expanding your operation. Those people bought into you because they were early adopters. They believe in you, right? Um, and now they get the benefit of ongoing revenues forever. So it's like a dividends, right? The reason why I say this has never been possible before is because another interesting can happen. Interesting thing can happen. Let's say I'm one of the token holders. I can sell that to somebody else. I can lose it in a bar bet. I can send it to a friend, right? I'd never have to sign a legal session document. I never have to consult you about transferring that token. But whoever owns that token will receive the dividend consistently. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, like that has never been possible in history before. 
Um, so yeah, we've got a we've got a smart contract. You make one payment to it. It just goes okay. Who are all the owners of the tokens? Split the payment up. Pay all of them out. Yeah. Um, it, it's not been possible before. Am I right in my assessment that uh, if there's a lot of community building when it comes to to NFTs? Yes. Um, I've sort of noticed sort of there's two big NFT projects in my head that stick out. There's one the Nulk Boys. If you're familiar with the Nulk yeah, Boys, they've got the, the they've got the Meta Card. And then there's obviously the board ape, which is the, yeah. um, the one- The everyone, huge one the that everyone knows, one. yeah. Um, and what do you get a lot from these sort of NFT, if you're a holder, at least let me speak on Nalk first. Yeah. But Nalk essentially now that if you own a MetaCard, you get access to sort of uh, full send lounges, mm. uh, full send gyms or whatever the case may be. So you get access to a lot of things and then you have also like meetups. Yeah. So you'll be able to meet up with one like-minded individuals mm. and two individuals that you can network on a business level with or whatever the case may mm. be. Um, and then the exact same sort of happens with Board Ape. They have like events yep. on yachts and what and whatnot. So I'm right in, in sort of that assessment that it's very community orientated. For sure. And those those are great examples of community NFT projects that have been very, very successful. I do think that in some senses, those are again an example of a Western privilege that is not necessarily directly uh, applicable to a, an African context, right? Okay. So over there, the benefits you get is like incredible parties, yacht parties and, and all kinds of things. Whereas in an African context, I'm far more excited about an NFT project to raise funds to create a solar farm that helps us solve energy problems in the country. And it gives all of those investors uh, continual revenues or growth of their money. Um, and these are the kinds of projects that we as a company are going to be pushing forward a lot more. And these are the kind of use cases that in the future are going to be far more common. NFTs started in the art world um, for many speculative reasons. Like people, you know, I think it was a good proof case for the technology, but it's now like NFTs to me actually are a lot more suited to replace shareholder structures and to replace corporate governance structures. I think those are the places where massive shifts are gonna happen uh, in the NFT space. And one of the challenges that we have right now is saying the word NFT and people assuming that means art. Yeah, everyone, everyone thinks of like a, a monkey or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it like it's a like, board ape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and also people assume that just because it's an NFT, it's worth tons and tons and tons of money. That's not true, right? Uh, an NFT is just a certificate. If it's a certificate of like a mineral that that's worth something you know if it's a certificate of my pair of glasses it's probably not worth much yes so it's like um in shipping they have things called bills of lading yeah and if you own that bill of lading you own the cargo on that on that um correct on that ship so it's pretty much like the sort of same correct same premise yeah now what about the skeptics because there's a lot of skeptics Tan with when it comes to nfc's thank goodness yeah, I guess that's, you know, you're doing something right. If, yeah. Like you said earlier, if you have, if you but, have hate. But also the technology is being forced to um, evolve very, very quickly because of the skeptics, right? Like one of the first problems that is major, like when Bitcoin came out, people very quickly realized, man, this is super, super bad for the environment. We just have thousands and thousands of computers all day, like running their GPUs on full steam with the hope that they manage to mine a block and earn some crypto, right? extremely energy inefficient. Now, because of that skepticism, or not skepticism, because of that criticism, that direct criticism from the, the public, um, developers have been forced to figure out other ways of doing um, still very secure blockchain uh, uh, validation on transactions. And now we're moving over to different models like proof of stake or proof of work. Uh, the technical details may be not as important as they're much better for the environment. So the one that we use at moment, for example, is 2.4 million times more energy efficient than Bitcoin. It's 300 times more energy efficient than a Visa card transaction. Okay. So wow. it's more energy efficient than if you bought a Starbucks cup of coffee. Man, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So where do you see the future of one moment and then NFTs? Yeah. So we've well, um, already touched on it a little bit. Yeah. So the future of NFTs, I think, is going to be Look, when the, when the dot-com bubble happened, it started because everybody just invested in companies because they were internet companies. I think we're seeing something similar now where people are just investing in NFTs or NFT projects because they're NFTs. And what happened at the end of the dot-com bubble is when, when it popped, 
everyone said, oh, what we should be looking out for is good business fundamentals, good underlying value. Like, does this actually make sense? Exact same thing is happening now with NFTs, right? You'll look at an NFT project and you'll go, is this just a collection of like stupid images or does this have good business fundamentals? Does it make sense? Does it have like an underlying value, right? So now if that's going to be the future of NFTs, I'm gonna invest in projects that uh, have a mineral underpinning, a business underpinning, a community underpinning. These, they, they need to make sense. They need to have uh, value underlying the actual product. Okay, I see, I see, I see, that makes sense. And, and the future of moment in, in that world, specifically for Africa, is that we're gonna be helping community projects use the technology to, to build and run and do incredible things. Like I said, solar farms, uh, investing in wine, investing in minerals that are here within the country. Um, a, a strong goal for us is again, job creation. And that's, that's a metric that we measure ourselves against, you know, and if we can provide a platform that enables international crypto investment into community run projects that make sense, um, and alternative investments that people may have niche skill sets in, right? Like you, for example, uh, actually maybe it's a bad example. I don't know you well, well enough, but, uh, many people don't invest in the stock market cause they don't understand it. Right. But uh, I have a friend, Robbie, who's been a farmer his entire life. And if I had a, 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 an NFT project that was built around uh, building a farm and they, they said how they were gonna do this, he could very easily look at that and evaluate whether or not this would be a good idea. And he can choose to invest in that or not to invest in that. He can use his skill set to make informed investment decisions that can grow his wealth. Um, and those kinds of alternative investment streams is, is I think where all the potential lies. Yeah. And Aaron, I want to say thank you, dude. Um, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. I think thank it's, you. Um, it's very much exactly where I want my podcast to be. Um, and I really hope that the listeners uh, enjoyed it. Um, I'll continue obviously monitoring your, your career with great um, Likewise. eagerness. Um, can't wait to see what you do. What you do. Um, I think you're, you're certainly an asset to this country. Um, and I, did, I admire the fact that you, you're sticking it out and you want to solve the problems that this country faces. Um, and more young people need to do the same thing. Me, me. We, we need to call Elon back. <laughs> call Elon he needs back. to stop pretending like he's not South African. <laughs> I swear this guy's literally, he's doing everything in his power for everyone to think to, he's to American. Think, yeah, it's like, dude, you're from Pretoria. So frustrating. Where are, where are Tesla power stations? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, certainly did. Um, and yeah, wish you all the best with the rest of 2022. Likewise. Thank you so much, man. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>